you all may have <clears throat> you know, a variety of feelings about how today has gone. And you may have fallen into the uh, seductive trap of assessing your practice and looking for evidence of progress or uh, went okay or it's a complete train wreck or everything in between. I'm a fantastic yogi. I'm the worst yogi ever. That range might be there. And we can get so close to the, I could say the details or the minutia of, of our experience, maybe especially on retreat when we've taken, <clears throat> excuse me, taken so many of the things that might distract us from our own minds and hearts and bodies away and we're so close to it and we can lose sight of the incredible goodness that is the direct reflection of the intention we have <clears throat> in coming on a retreat like this and in engaging with this practice that we put in our mind and place in front of us this um, valuing of understanding, of cultivating wisdom, compassion, and however we might phrase that and think of that. And maybe especially in this day and age to hold that as a value and to hold it, value it enough that we would come and spend nine days doing what isn't always very easy and isn't always a whole lot of fun in service of that is beautiful and powerful and incredibly good. And I um, bow to that intention and uh, to all of you with great appreciation and respect for that. I just want to tell you that, and I'm not just trying to make you, pep you up here. It's, it's real. A little pepping up, but, but I hope you can, can touch that a little bit. And I also hope that you can, and touch some appreciation and respect for yourselves in light of that. And also, I was just coming up here and just had such a sense of blessing to be able to come and meditate in a place like this. This is a, a deva realm. I was telling the folks in my group today, I think. Um, you know, there are places called forest centers that Joseph and Kamala and I, and I think Nisha, and I think all of us have practiced in. And, you know, if this, there would be loudspeakers blaring and packs of dogs howling and all kinds of stuff going on that we aren't having here. <laughs> this is kind of like really a forest center. And the, the fact that we are here and have this opportunity is a reflection of some very wholesome past kamma, karma, past actions. And to, and to really honor that and respect that in yourselves and let go of assessing how well today went, how well the retreat has gone. And, and really to have, see the practice as, as in this image I love of planting a seed. We're just going to plant seeds. We're just going to put drops in this, 
this urn we're filling or plant these seeds. And that's our job and that's what we can do. And you can have such joy in just every moment of mindfulness planting that seed. It's such a beautiful thing to do. Wonderful, honorable. So good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers, oh children of the noble ones, you fine assembly of medium-sized beings. (laughs) If we look at the teachings that are attributed to the Buddha, just in this tradition alone, it's volumes. Do you have any idea how many discourses there are in the Pali Canon? It's hundreds, lots. And, and then there's the, all the, the teachings in the Mahayana tradition that are attributed to the Buddha as well. It's, it's a huge amount of material there. But once in a while the Buddha would kind of sum things up pretty succinctly. A famous quotation from, uh, that the Buddha is attributed to the Buddha. Now and before I teach one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. You've just heard it all. So what would he have been pointing to? I mean, we could see this statement. I really was thinking recently that this is like a, a condensed version, the condensed version of uh, the Four Noble Truths, really. The truth of suffering, of dukkha, the truth of the cause of that, the truth of, the truth of the cessation or release from that, and the path leading to that release. Now statements like this, I teach suffering, and and sometimes the end of suffering part gets left off and it gives Buddhism a a bad rap. It's a downer kind of religion. You know, life is suffering. Better get used to it. (laughs) Have a nice life, good luck with that. (laughs) But you know, the Buddha and his followers, they were known as the happy ones. They were famous for being, uh, having an air of deep contentment, peacefulness, a deep kind of happiness. They were known as the happy Sangha. They weren't walking around all bummed out. Oh man, life is suffering, bummer. This quality of contentment is so elusive, isn't it? Once in a while we, we touch into this sense of, of a kind of contentment. And at least I'll speak for the culture here in the United States. There's a, a sense of a culture of discontent a lot of the time and this feeling we're living in this state of lack and there's so much we seem to need and, and we're certainly offered a lot of, of things to fill that lack. A lot of stuff. The whole world of advertising, the media rests on this uh, sense that we are in a state of lack and we need these things and then we'll be okay, we'll be happy. Contentment through 
getting the thing, whatever it might be. And we have this strong conditioning to look outside of ourselves, outside of our own heart and mind for contentment, to experiences, things, conditions. And we see our, our ability to be content as dependent on conditions in this way. And the great, we give up a lot of personal power in this regard because we see contentment as being dependent. And, it, and we lose sight of the fact that it's an internal experience. I think it was either last year or the year before, uh, I lose track, but I, I was uh, here on retreat. Sometimes I teach the winter retreat this past, or this year, I taught both months of that in February, March, more or less, but the year before, I don't know, was anyone here and saw me around? I think it was the year before I was here as a yogi for, the, for both months. Really grateful to have had that opportunity. And I try to take some time, hopefully extended time for retreat as often as I can. And I'd never been on retreat at Spirit Rock, in this place at least, and I'd never... Um, It'd been a long time, years since I'd done a, a kind of organized retreat like that. And uh, I was so happy here. <clears throat> and it wasn't because I remember reporting to my teachers, I'm just so contented. I feel such contentment. And it wasn't because, you know, things weren't that great in some ways from some objective perspective. My back went out, a lot of pain. I had to do a lot of reclining, practice in the reclining posture because my back was really giving me trouble. And, uh, you know, it rained pretty much the entire first month, (laughs) which could have been kind of a drag. And, you know, from my my perspective, my own assessment, which is really to be, you know, I have to be very careful of it because it tends to go... I tend to see myself as a remedial yogi. And there is some evidence to support this, but, um, <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> you know, it wasn't going that great, but you know, I was working it. But I was so happy, so contented. What's up with that? It wasn't because of, of these obvious signs. It made me think of this other times when I've tasted this uh, kind of contentment where it seemed to not be really related that much to the external conditions. And I'm sure all of us, or many of us, have stories like this. I've told this story before, but it's kind of striking. I was in Bodh Gaya. This is quite a while ago. Bodh Gaya's, it was a little rougher then. And I was on retreat in the Thai Vihara, and at that time, they'd put a, the, the men were living in this space underneath the main temple building. And it wasn't high enough to actually stand up straight in unless you were probably under five feet or four and a half feet tall. And it was, um, there were straw pallets on the ground under there 
with mosquito nets. And they were just, there were maybe a foot or two between them, rows of us. And uh, it wouldn't have passed, you know, code. <laughs> in, in the States, at least, <laughs> for, for habitation. It was rustic, shall we say. And because it was in this, there was one way out, <laughs> and because it was quite a distance from the toilets, we had uh, two five-gallon buckets um, for, uh, to collect urine overnight. And it was someone's job to empty those buckets. And somehow it seemed to fall to me. And I remember one morning I was walking along with my buckets of urine, having crawled out of this space. <laughs> and, you know, there were, these, there were lots of other interesting conditions there. <laughs> and I just remember feeling so contented. <laughs> and I will grant you that it was uh, clear in my mind and heart that I, I knew, some part of me knew, that, that this would not be my life for the rest of my life. But my feeling was, if it was, it'd be fine. I didn't need it to be other than the way it was. It's okay. It's happy. This, this contentment that can arise really just out of the... I remember on my first three-month retreat being so happy and contented to be able to live with that much care. That's what I loved, that I could live that carefully. Well, maybe I've got some real deep problems here in this being happy in, in these situations. I don't know. But to me, it points to some kind of possibility that we can, can feel or taste. So I think going back to this suffering, uh, this statement of the Buddha, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Well, the end of suffering, part of that might sound, that sounds pretty good. But why teach suffering? How... How would that lead to contentment, to happiness? You know, what's up with that? Isn't, isn't life hard enough without turning to suffering? Shouldn't we be trying to avoid that somehow? Of course, part of the problem in the translation of this uh, statement is translating uh, the word dukkha, the Pali word dukkha as suffering, which is uh, mostly used, translation that's mostly used. We, we find other ones, but it's, it's an inadequate. It does speak to some aspect of what this word points to, but it's not an adequate translation. This is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, goes by the name Tan Jeff, is a teacher who has a, uh, lives in, a monk, lives in California, Wat Metta near San Diego. <clears throat> no single English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so forth. And each has its own merits in a given context. There is value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any one particular translation of this word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha, 
I repeat that, the entire thrust of this teaching is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. So it's really uh, important, you could say crucial, that we have some sense of what this term dukkha points to. What does it really mean? It's critical. And the Buddha, with the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Truth of Dukkha is to be understood. So we can, uh, so I'll I'll begin uh, to talk about it. I'll say some things about it this evening. We can understand Dukkha on, on more than one level. So the most obvious level is tied perhaps most closely to this translation of the word as suffering or stress. It has to do with um, pain and painful feelings that come in the body and the mind, associated with bodily life, difficult mental and emotional states that come for all of us at times. This is part of life, this happens at times. Sometimes it's really hard, sometimes it's painful. We get sick, all of the things associated with the process of living, aging, sickness, and then ultimately death. There's a more subtle uh, way of uh, looking at, thinking about dukkha that has to do with qualities of, you could say, unreliability, kind of insecurity, and they're intrinsic to all aspects of our life, all experience, whether pleasant or unpleasant, whether uh, painful or, or not. It's a kind of, almost like an inner anxiety that is directly produced by and related to the truth of change that Kamala spoke about so beautifully last night, her talk on the immensity an infinity of impermanence. And there's this, this kind of unsatisfactoriness, one of the translations of dukkha, that pervades life, that directly stems from and reflects this truth of impermanence. Everything is changing, flow of changing conditions, largely out of our direct control. And it can lead to these subtle, pervasive feelings of a kind of vulnerability. It's a kind of fragility there. When I first uh, came to formal practice, I was living in San Francisco at that time. In the 1980s, I lived there. I lived, uh, I lived in this great old fire station, converted fire station in the Excelsior district. I lived on Brazil between Vienna and Athens. (laughs) Sounds really great, but it was kind of a funky part of the city. I I have a friend who grew up there and he had never been to or even heard of the Excelsior (laughs) district. (laughs) Kind of way, way out, the very outer, outer mission for those of you who know the city. (laughs) Perilously close to Daly City. But cool digs. 
I had a cool motorcycle, vintage BMW, R50 slash two for you aficionados. Pretty cool leather jacket, more hair. I was cool. I checked it out, it's true. You didn't know me then. It's, it's a tra- there's been a tragic decline in coolness. Which actually, you know, it just doesn't bother me as much as it should. And you know, I had good work, interesting work, good friends. I had kind of an artsy, bohemian life. I used to build models for a museum, the Academy of Sciences. Giant dinosaurs and bugs and things. That's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of good times, good friends, time when I could travel and I was earning, I wasn't getting rich, but I could pay the rent and feed myself and it was a lot cheaper then. And yet there was this thread of of this dissatisfaction that pervaded my life in a certain way. And at times, I, I tended to keep myself pretty busy but there were times when it would surface and I would feel this, this sense of, well, I've gotten it really together. And yet it feels there's this, this emptiness somewhere, this sense of something lack or some sense of, you know, I've, I don't know what else to do here to, to kind of get things, get myself to feel contented, or happy. And actually touching into dukkha, which is what was happening there, was, was really part of the impetus that, uh, that sent me on my first meditation retreat, which was the start of a, a long, interesting journey that I had no sense was in store for me and could not possibly have imagined. That first retreat changed the trajectory of my life completely. The timing was right that that happened. So there is this depth and breadth of a, this kind of um, insecurity that really pervades and underlies the what we could call the human condition. And it, it, it's woven into the fabric of our lives and forms our lives in a profound uh, but often kind of unnoticed way touch into it in the way I described in my own life, just sometimes feel something. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Whether in the form of pain, frustration, or distress, suffering reveals the basic insecurity of the human condition. It throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our will. You know, we're, we're conditioned, certainly I've seen this operating in my own life, to the sense that we're supposed to get our lives to some point where it's, oh, it's the way it's supposed to be. It's, and it's always pleasant. We like it. It's some sense as though we're supposed to be 
exempt from the truth of change. Things are supposed to get to a good place and then stay there and, and it should be enough. It should be fulfilling. And we can bring some of this attitude on retreat. You know, we can find ourselves approaching the practice. We probably wouldn't admit this if anyone asked us directly, but we have this, this hope that we're going to be gaining some special control or tool that's going to allow us to finally get it together in this way. It's only going to be pleasant. We see the Buddha's enlightenment only having pleasant experiences. Something like that. But the Buddha, he had all kinds of problemos, all kinds of suras. Mad elephants trying to run him down and people giving him a bad name and all kinds of things. But because of this conditioning and attitude, we tend to take the truth of dukkha personally. We tend to see our inability to get things to be this stable way we, they're supposed to be as evidence of personal failure, as somehow our fault, as though we just didn't, don't have our act quite together. And of course, we have some, uh, it's not, not that we don't have any ability to add something in. We're not without, completely without any agency and we do our best to live well and we let well and we bring as much integrity and we live with as much grace and, um, you know, as much goodness that we can bring to things as possible. But we can't, we don't get this kind of control to have it only be a certain way. It's not possible. <clears throat> and there's a key understanding. The Buddha, he explored the same stuff. What's, what do we do with this situation? This lack of control, this dukkha, this unreliability. And what he came to in his uh, exploration of this was the understanding that this pervasive unreliability, unsatisfactoriness is, is born in the mind and is um, the struggle with this unreliability, not the, the unsatisfactoriness or the, you could say, the unreliability, that's, that's just there. But suffering and struggle and stress in relation to that are born in the mind. They result from how we're relating to it. And it's not to say, and, or to deny in any way, any way, the very real suffering that is there and exists for so many and the truths of poverty and oppression and injustice are all too real in the world. But, and, and sometimes life is just hard and we get sick and it's hard and there's pain and suffering on that level. But if we look and see, we'll, we'll see that the roots of struggle and stress in relation to this have their genesis in the mind and are the result of um, resistance and denial and misguided attempts to try and control what we cannot control. Try to manipulate it. Try to get around the truth of change. And when we talk about this, it seems obvious, I think, but it runs really counter to the usual way we look at things because we're so conditioned to look 
to these conditions outside of ourselves for the source of our suffering and for the solution. But it's such good news to see that, that struggle and stress on this level are, are an internal condition, that it's, it's there in our relationship because then we have some possibility to, we can work on that. Our ability to control life is limited at best. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, the world is never fully susceptible to domination by our will. I love that. And the practice doesn't give us this kind of control and it doesn't give us a special way to escape from the truth of impermanence, the truth of dukkha on this level. So the Buddha's liberation is is about a different kind of freedom. It's about what you could think of as a kind of independence. An unconditional kind of freedom. Because if our freedom is dependent on things being a particular way, then it's never gonna be real freedom. It's too fragile, won't last. So if we open to dukkha and in this way and bring the understanding that stress and struggle and suffering is uh, related to how we're orienting to, how we're relating to the truth of this uh, unreliability, this fragility of dukkha, then it's, it's a radical transformation of our view, our orientation, our approach to life. And it also shifts our view to this broader perspective where we start to see how universal this situation is. It isn't just us. It's dukkha is not a personal problem, not a reflection of our inability to get our act together. It's an ailment that's woven through, embedded in the very fabric of our existence. And it needs a really different therapy than what we may have and certainly what the culture is offering us as a solution to it. This is from the great Thai uh, forest monk, Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that just leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. until we really open to this truth and really let it in and, and really get to understand it, the noble truth of dukkha, we're gonna be looking for a way out and turning to that which by its very nature is inherently uh, unreliable and incapable of bringing us lasting happiness. It just can't do it. And it's a futile search and this, is, this just leads to more suffering. But if we skillfully open to this truth, then we'll start looking for a reliable strategy. If we open the book, Luca, we, we, and we see the road is blocked, then we'll look for a way, a new path. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started, the Buddha. And so we let go of struggling and fighting against this and 
against dukkha, against change. We shift our view. We let go of fighting against the truth of things, against reality. We look for a way that leads out of struggle and towards freedom. And the key that unlocks this, that unlocks the door that leads us to this kind of path is mindfulness, mindful awareness. We've been talking about it a lot. Joseph gave a whole talk on, on what is mindfulness. Ask yourself the question right now, is there awareness? Or am I aware if you prefer? It's a good question to ask once in a while because you always get to say yes. Just enough awareness to ask the question, it's there. Might not have been, might not be in the next moment, but in the asking of that question, check it out right now. Is there awareness? Feel it. Get a feel for that. It's so simple. And we don't have to, you know, sit around kind of getting, getting, here it comes. I'm going to have my moment of mindfulness. I can feel it, you know, kind of, it's just right now. It's like a little switch, but it's profound. It's so simple, we overlook how profound that is, that shift of consciousness. It's a complete game changer in our lives. And Joseph spoke to this the other night, this talk on mindfulness. And there are the famous lines in the Dhammapada that sum this up very uh, directly and very succinctly and very powerfully. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. Those are strong words. But there's an important uh, truth they're pointing to there. It's, with mindful awareness, you could say all things are possible. This is that sense there, this possibility. And without, without it, we're just living out our conditioning. It's this rolling on, as Kamala was saying, the rolling on of samsara, the suffering that leads to more suffering. The Buddha was moved to teach, it is said, out of seeing beings trying to be happy and doing the very thing that caused them to suffer. That rolling of that wheel, just living out the conditioning there as if dead already. The other night, uh, Dara uh, used a a teaching quoted from a teaching called the simile of the raft, one of, a favorite teaching of mine. <clears throat> and this image, which the Buddha used often, uh, images from uh, really, really good, clear kind of simple pictures there, direct kinds of illustrations. 
I want to return to that teaching and the same image of the raft. I'll be repeating some of the same words, but I want to look at it in a different way, a little, a slightly different aspect of this, this teaching and, and using this image of the raft. And this might be a slightly different translation. So these are the words of the Buddha. Suppose someone were traveling along a path and saw a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. And the thought would occur to them, here is this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky, the further shore secure, free from risk, but there is neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. And then they would think, what if I were to gather grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, were to cross over to safety on the other shore, independence on the raft, and by making an effort with my hands and feet. And then having gathered together grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, they would cross over to safety, to the other shore, independence on the raft, and by making an effort with hands and feet. not the whole teaching, part of that teaching. I love this image. And and I think it's a useful one for for a couple of reasons that I'll touch on tonight. This this sense of crossing this flooded area or or crossing this this, this sense of an area that's, uh, this expanse of water. It's often described as an area that's flooded. And and many times what, um, what motivates us to, to come to a path, a practice like this, to, to enter in what, into what we might call a spiritual life is this sense of, of being swept along by a flood. A flood of uh, life's changing events and unpredictability and, and sometimes a sense of being almost overwhelmed by this flood of things that are out of our control responsibilities and duties and worries and all of that can feel like a flood. And then the sense of crossing that, this way across to this stable ground of a kind of ease or security, the Buddha said, uh, secure and free from risk. We can See, see our practice in that way as the sense of crossing to safety, kind of real deep safety. And, and it's a good image as long as we don't hold it too literally because the practice isn't about going somewhere other than where we are right now. It's not about getting something we don't have. We end up where we started, but our understanding is changed. And there's some lines from T.S. Eliot in... Uh, the four quartets and the part called Little Gidding that uh, beautifully speak to this. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So nothing changes and yet everything is completely transformed. 
you could say, transformed by the power of insight and understanding, this deep seeing into the truth of things, which uh, leads to this uh, release, this letting go, letting be. So we use the raft to cross the flood of confusion and uncertainty and ignorance to the secure, risk-free ground of wisdom and understanding. And I love the image of this raft that is made out of, uh, what is it? It's made out of, in this translation, grass, twigs, branches, and leaves. Yeah, I love it. It relates to me very directly to the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta where we have these establishments of mindfulness of body, of feelings, of the quality or of the mind, of, of patterns of experience. We'll, we'll be fleshing this out more and more. But basically to say that this, the four establishments of mindfulness include the entirety of our experience. Everything is there. It's all there. There is nothing that doesn't isn't there. <laughs> so we, we, we make the raft out of the stuff that's there on the shore. <laughs> Grass, leaves, twigs, branches. They're nearby and readily available. So then in actual practice in our meditation, the raft, our vehicle, is made out of the material of our moment-to-moment experience. It's made out of bodily sensations. It's made out of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. It's made out of thoughts and mental activities. It's made out of restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. It's made out of joy and sorrow. It's made from what we find beautiful and what we do not find beautiful. And what we like and what we don't like. It's what's right here, right now right in front of us. This is the vehicle. The vehicle for our liberation is this stuff, the mundane stuff, pleasant, unpleasant, coarse, refined, gross, subtle, everything. It's all good for making the raft. And it's a raft. It's not a special luxury yacht. And we're not going to stay high and dry above the flood. It's a raft, and from the sound of it, with leaves, grass, twigs, and branches, it's funky. (laughs) When I was a kid, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and we didn't have rivers. They had dammed the river. There was one. But they had it channeled into these big irrigation canals. And I grew up in a house that was right next to the, the banks of this canal, and we used to build rafts float down the canal. And it was made out of, we'd just go where people had dumped stuff they didn't want. Pieces of wood and empty jugs and hunks of styrofoam and someone had a bamboo thing and we'd collect bamboo, that was our decking. And it floated. (laughs) But you did not stay dry on the thing. It was what people didn't want. It was their trash. <laughs> it's in the water. We're moving it along with our hands and feet. 
So we're probably going to get wet. And sometimes if we hit some rapids, it could be a little rough. It's going to maybe need repairs. So we construct our raft constantly in the meditation from all of these things in our ongoing experience. We, we gather it up and we bind it together. The lashing is mindful awareness. Mindfulness binds it together. Binds all this stuff into a raft, into a vehicle. And the steady and more continuous this quality of mindfulness is, the more stable the raft is going to be. But sometimes it's going to get broken up by the flood. It's going to fall apart. And we're going to have to start, we'll be floating downstream, gathering the stuff back together, <laughs> binding it back together, lashing it together with awareness. And we make a new raft because there's always something floating by. It's all suitable. Anything that floats by is suitable. We work with what's here right now in the moment. It's all good. And so through this process and this uh, cultivation of this sense of continuity of the awareness, as that begins to strengthen and there's this stability of mind, the raft, stays together for a few more minutes than it was, a little longer, a little longer. We begin to um, have this ability, or you could say the awareness is able to rest a little more firmly on, on experience, on life. It can stay there long enough to drop beneath the surface of things. You see a little bit deeper into things below below the surface. And this is, this is this ability, this is why we practice in this way and we emphasize this continuity is, is that stability, that non-distractedness, that collectedness and this ability to rest with our experience more, a little more firmly is what allows insight into the truths of impermanence of unsatisfactoriness and ultimately of this uncontrollable coreless nature of things. That's, that's the insight that, that frees the mind and heart. And this wise discernment starts to arise just naturally out of this uh, process of seeing more deeply into these truths. And we see what um, leads to happiness, what leads to suffering in our own lives in the world, what is worth cultivating, what is better to abandon. It allows us the ability to start making wise choices in terms of which energies we're going to follow. And there's this radical reorientation of our relationship to this truth of dukkha, this unreliability, this, this vulnerability there. And we let go of struggling and fighting against that, come into harmony with that. We don't relate to it as a mistake or our fault. We don't take it personally. What we do 
is to stop asking this world of changing conditions and unpredictability to provide something it can never provide. We stop asking it to do what it can't do. We stop looking there for for safety or refuge, for this security. We don't judge it, we don't judge ourselves because it's arising, because that's the way it is. So we take refuge, we find safety in wakefulness, in wisdom, in the truth of things. We stand on reality and let go of fighting against it. And this is uh, opening to the suffering, and Ajahn Chah said, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This transforms the truth of dukkha into a noble truth. And it leads us to discover what we could think of as a kind of refuge that's available, it's reliable, it's, it's there in any moment. What Joseph said the other night, happiness is available, please help yourselves. Right now. In any moment, the mind, the heart can open and let go and find this kind of security. Take refuge in this quality of mindfulness itself in a way. It's a certain way we can look at it. And there's a voice of wisdom that is revealed in our own heart. You could say a place inside that already knows the truth and is already free and never was any other way. So I'll end tonight with uh, some words from uh, a Thai nun who uh, lived in the last century, I think, died in the late 70s or early 80s, fairly recent current, named uh, Mechi Gao. And she was um, considered to be, held to be uh, fully enlightened being in Thailand. She was a student of Ajahn Mahabua and of Ajahn Man, two very famous teachers. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, emotions, anger, greed, delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight. 
and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is by its very nature absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So let's have a couple of moments of silence. We can let, let these words flow through and out and drift into the evening. Thank you for your kind attention. And uh, this is the best time to do walking. And Venus will start to show up in the west and Jupiter and Saturn. And the moon is already up. So time for some of that. And then uh, please be welcome to come for the chanting. We'll be chanting the Metta Sutta in Pali this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.